Well, hello and welcome to episode number 355 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show we look at a new website just for the passenger which focuses on turbulence. The Airbus Beluga looks to obtain ETOP certification and a Southwest crew present passengers with a very amusing pre-flight brief. In the military news this week, the US Air Force is planning to get six new e 118s with a Battlefield Airborne Communication node payload. A Brazilian Air Force KC-390 is in Alaska for cold weather testing. They should have come to the UK. So joining me this week in a very chilly minus two UK uh, this week, it is our awesome chap in the studio pushing all the right buttons, all the right sliders, and uh, well, just being awesome, it is Matt Smith. Wow, what do you want? <laughs> that was quite the introduction. Yeah. Check in the post. Mind you, thank you. Oh, right. Oh, well, I've got to send you money for that. Oh, okay. Check. Who, who sends checks yeah. these days? Come on. Yeah, me, ironically, because I had to apply for a logbook which had gone missing, and, and they ask you to send a check or postal order. I mean, a how quaint. I know. Well, how quaint. Yes. I, 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 if someone <laughs> asked me to do a check, I'd laugh. I don't know why I'd do a check. Yeah. A lot of people but... don't have checkbooks. I know. <laughs> So, and joining us this week, as always, is our master of everything cable management. It is, of course, Neville Bounds. Yes, hello, everybody. And, uh, boy, it's very chilly out there. Funny, it's only about minus two here, but the wind chill is phenomenal. So uh, I was going to go for a walk this evening, but I decided against that. So I went down to get some fish and chips with Mrs. Nev ooh, uh, in the ooh, car. Lovely. far more preferable, I've got to say. So uh, that was all good. And uh, looking forward to a fantastic show tonight i have to say indeed uh, fyi St- uh, Stephen i was saying he, he wrote a check uh this morning so there you go there we go <laughs> it's probably a pre-check before he went flying i expect oh i see go. what you did there yeah, yeah very clever yeah. Yeah. and joining us from his probably very much warmer studio than what we are here in the uk is of course our military aviation expert himself it is Armando. Hey guys, it is incredibly nice to be back here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where there's a balmy 57 degrees. Last week, we'll talk about it here in a second, I was up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where everything below minus 10 Fahrenheit just doesn't count and all feels the same and you just don't go outside. So, Fair enough. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> it's good to have you on, Armando. Good to have you on. Glad to be so- back. This uh, this week, we have a very special guest on the show joining us this week. And uh, our guest this week, he is the president of Honeywell Aerospace, Europe, Middle East, Africa and India. And our guest, Jim, has over 30 years of experience in the aviation industry since joining Honeywell in 2006. He has held a number of leadership positions in customer experience, business strategy development, product development, and much, much more. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show, Jim Courier. Welcome on to the show, Jim. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for the very kind introduction. <laughs> thank you. So, Jim, uh, just for the benefit of everyone watching, whereabouts in the globe are you this evening? At present, I'm actually in New York City at the moment. Uh, been, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I've actually been stuck here. My home base for me is Switzerland. Uh, I came back uh, for the holidays with the family and been attempting to get back to Switzerland. But uh, one of the topics I think we'll talk a little bit about here is about air travel in general and the difficulties that it is to travel. And I happen to be experiencing that very firsthand at the moment uh, in trying to get back uh, to Europe. 
Yeah, it's hard for us to get anywhere right now, Jim. You know, I was supposed to go to the US last year, didn't happen, but hopefully um, things will get better uh, in the not too distant future. Agree, I agree. So Jim, we're gonna have a chat with you later on. We've got some great questions lined up for you, Jim, and we're gonna have a chat with you in just a bit, but we have got a weekly roundup uh, this week, haven't we, uh, guys? Indeed. I think that's Mondo? with Armando, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and we all did all kinds of stuff this week. I'm sure we're all very busy in lockdown. Um, <laughs> but like, actually, like Jim is mentioning, I, I've been through this whole pandemic just kind of apprehensive to travel and seeing the changes. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was an airline pilot. At the end of the pandemic, well, I don't know if we're at the end, but right now I'm no longer an airline pilot. But I did get a chance to uh, go up to Oshkosh, like I mentioned, and uh, the last 12 days, I've actually been at the iconic Basler Turbo Conversions. These oh. are folks that take uh, 1942, as I learned, not so many DC-3s. Most of them were actually C-47s, military C-47s, because there were thousands and thousands of them produced. Um, they take these airplane, airplanes that they find from all over the world. They gut them all down, uh, turn it into a zero-time airframe, make it a, a fantastic brand-new airplane and um, we're going to do this uh, segment next week where I'm going to have all kinds of uh, pictures and some videos, but it is nothing short of artistry. What these uh, workers and manufacturers and avionics guys and upholstery guys are doing, it was just uh, just an amazing experience. And, and we had the red carpet rolled out from, from their management team, and uh, it was just fantastic. So re really good uh, experience. And I'm looking forward to talking about it next week. I'd, I'd like to talk about this picture that you've sent in, to be fair. Now, did you take that photo or is that it? I did. I did. Because I, I that took... sky is insane. Well, yeah. So the storm that Jim got uh, two weekends ago actually came through Oshkosh. And I, if you remember that movie, Cool Runnings, that's what I was like, because I, I got <laughs> out of the airplane. There was more snow than I could, you know, you can't even, you can't even uh, calculate. And, and then the next day, it was just beautiful. It was these beautiful skies, ice and snow. It was, uh, and, and where Basler sits, it's a, it's a beautiful part of Wisconsin, right by Lake Winnebago. Um, so there's these just iconic red barns everywhere. And it's, uh, and you know, two, three feet of snow. And, and then for, for the keen av geek like us, you'll see uh, the fuselage of a C-47 just slightly buried in the snow, but, but uh, <laughs> lots of great pictures. And you can see uh, in the back there, there in the background, there's, um, there's uh, an, an original C-47. Mm. I think that was a commemorative yeah. Air Force one that they're going to take on as a project um, for charity for, for that organization. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll get uh, John to pop that onto social media now so that uh, uh, anybody who's listening to the audio version of this show later on will be able to see that picture. So, yeah. Actually, I was going to say, yeah. Matt, Jonathan Warner in the chat room, obviously he's a photographer, as yes. we all know, Mr. Warner. Yes. He does say that that photo is epic. That is genuinely one of the... As I said, that's, I, I, it was so good, Armando. I didn't believe it had been taken by you, I'll be honest. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. It was an iPhone XR. So. <gasps> oh, 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 no, don't say that. Like, Carlos will get very waspy. Anyway, we need to move on. Uh, we do, we do. And uh, obviously, uh, it is uh, called around about uh, that beginning of the month. We missed it last week, 
Facts show, but we have got it back this week. And it's obviously our time to say a big thanks to a lot of people. So, Nev, who are we thanking this month on the show? Yes, this is all about thanking everybody for their donations towards the show, uh, which we are very grateful for. And uh, this month, the Patreon donators are Nicholas Codling, Warren Dixon, Louis Cachares, uh, uh, Alan Loveday, Andrew Van der Sarg, Alan White, Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Megan Carrion, uh, Stuart Backer, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Matt Caton, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Ray Williams, Jacob Darlington-Brown, Nicholas Hewitt, Masher, Owen, Reuben Wells, uh, Graham Haley, Myla, Evan Shue, Philip Lave, and Stephanie Plummer. And those people that donated by PayPal are Lee Davis, Richard Adams, Jennifer Parkinson, Mazuz Kareem, Tony Stubbings, and Anthony Smithson. Thank you very much, one and all, for your fantastic donations. They really do make the show work so much better. Very true. A big thanks from all of us here at the team for everyone who does donate to the show because, uh, yeah, as Nev said, it helps to push things all forward. So thank you, everyone. I'll tell you what, there's absolutely no flies on Jacob Darlington-Brown there. He just went... Hang on a minute, I haven't heard that for a while, but isn't that different music? <laughs> I mean, I doff my cap to you, Mr. Darlington-Brown, uh, because, uh, yes, it is different music for no other reason than because I didn't realise that I needed it this week and I couldn't find it in the short time that we had, so I just went with whatever I could find on file. A good, so, choice, of, a good choice of music. Well done, Matt. Well done. Absolutely. Well done. God, oh dear. So yes. we're going to talk about everyone who is in the YouTube chat room this evening. So big thanks to... We're going to run down on this quickly. Here we go. We've got uh, Richard Adams. Uh, Lane Street, we've always got to have a show with Lane in. Graham Haley, Stephen Ivy, the Air Stig is also in there. Uh, Richard Adams, Stephen H. Masher is also in there. Hello to you, Masher. John Jester is in the chat room as well. Captain Cruz, uh, we've got, scrolling down, make sure I don't miss anyone. Dr. Steph is also in the chat room as well. Uh, and just make sure I don't miss anyone. Lara, Meg, uh, Megan Carrion is also in the chat room. Never heard of her. Who's that? Keeping an eye on a certain someone. And also, <laughs> Jacob Darlington-Brown, as Matt said, God knows what the time is where uh, Jacob is, but it's obviously very uh, early, I'd imagine, in the morning over in Australia. Uh, so a big hello to you and big thanks to everyone who has joined us. And don't forget, if you are listening to the show uh, on the audio podcast, uh, make sure you head over to YouTube. Look for us on there, Plain Talking UK. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button, hit the bell icon, which is right next door uh, to be notified when we go live. And you can join all these lovely people in the chat room who are watching the show currently with us. So we are going to move on with the next part of the show then, which is our chat with our guest, Jim Curry. So Jim, thank you again for, uh, for coming on the show this evening and taking time out of your day, because I'm sure, it's, uh, I'm sure you're a very busy uh, gentleman. But uh, uh, we have got some, uh, a few questions for you. So uh, Nev, did you want to uh, kick off with uh, the first one? Yes, thanks very much indeed, uh, Jim. Really appreciate uh, you coming on the show today. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, well, sort of Honeywell have done a great deal of research into passenger expectations and consumer preferences when it comes to, to travelling and sort of post-pandemic. So let's sort of start there. What kind of research does it sh show you and what sort of implications do you think that has for the remainder of the year compared to what we saw last year and pre-COVID? And first off, I just wanted to say thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure 
uh, to be on your show, and, and I welcome the opportunity to to chat with you guys about some of these topics that you uh, that you want to talk about. Um, in terms of the research, it, it is true we we have conducted um, numerous research over the past year um, at different stages during during the pandemic. We'll call it um, you know early stages, you know, kind of you know pre-vaccine stages, and now there's a vaccine, and you know what do we think about what's going to happen in the industry, and what do folks feel about travel at that point? I think one of the things that I would say, if you think about pre-COVID, post-COVID, just in general, um, I think, you know, in, in the pre-COVID environment, you know, when you thought about travel, it was, you know, is there Wi-Fi on board? Is there in-flight entertainment? You know, what are the meals going to be like? What's the fastest way I can get from point A to point B? Do I have to connect? And it was kind of a, a carefree sort of an approach Um Folks didn't worry about, you know, safety uh, of the aircraft. It was just a different environment. Post-COVID, what the research is indicating to us, you know, first and foremost, hygiene, safety, health is at the forefront of everyone's mind at the end of the day. Um, and, and that's universal. You know, our, our research has been done, you know, in the U.S. and in the U.K. We did some in Central Eastern Europe, Middle East. We did a little bit in the Asia-Pacific region as well, and, and universal. It's about safety, it's about health, it's about hygiene. Um, the a majority of the respondents, you know, are expecting and, and desire airlines to provide them, you know, a mask, they desire um, uh, sanitizer, hand sanitizers, they desire surface wipes, you know, to kind of continue that cleanliness of the aircraft while they're on board. They want to make sure there's an ability to social distance, um, not only on the aircraft itself, which is a difficult environment to do that in, but, you know, going through your check-in process, going through security, going through the, the gate, you know, they want to be able to maintain that level of social distancing. Again, all driven by a hygiene, health, and, and safety aspect. And I think one of the things that really popped out to us is what goes along the lines of cleanliness and hygiene was the use of technology. The folks were actually indicating and, and strongly pushing for the usage of technology to actually disinfect and or clean the aircraft prior to coming on board. And that really stems from a couple of areas when you think about it. One of it is it's, it's reliable, it can be repeatable, it can be consistent. Um, it's visual to them as well. well. You know, when they see the equipment there to be able to go on board an aircraft and clean the aircraft, it instills a level of confidence that the proper measures are being taken to introduce the safety aspect of it. So for us, it was interesting. Clearly, health and safety would come out as one of these things and some expectations from the airlines, but really the introduction of technology to provide that level of comfort to the passengers was something I found quite interesting coming out of the research that we've done. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? It's all about the passenger experience at, at the end of the day. Yes. In these very, you know, difficult and unusual times. One of the things I was going to ask you as well, Jim, is that obviously we've got, you know, Honeywell's very much an international company and we've got different parts of the world probably going to be operating at different speeds with, with the vaccine and trying to come back to normal. How is Honeywell able to deal with those different situations around the world? I think one of the things that's super, super vitally important here in being able to deal with the different situations and, and recovery maybe associated with commercial air travel 
is a level of, of gaining a level of intimacy with our customers, right? Um, particularly in a very, very different environment. We're not able to be there face-to-face, -face, sitting down with them, talking with them. It's, it's a virtual environment that we're operating in. So we've actually taken a much higher level of interaction and engagement, regular and recurring discussions, really understanding what are the problems that they are facing and what are their desires and what are their expectations to incorporate you know, solutions for them. By doing that, we're able to become very proactive in how we address issues and how we address problems as opposed to being reactive. If you get into a situation where you do have recoveries that are happening and you're reactive to those recoveries, you'll have a tendency to have a lot of missed opportunities that may manifest out of that. So by being intimately engaged with our customer, understanding specifically what their problems are, and it's not just around passenger safety, but other things that they are dealing with in order to that passengers may not understand and being very proactive in those solutions allows us to be able to be very flexible in how we provide our solutions and or our support to the various customers that we have around the world. Jim, we've got uh, another question for you. Um, this sort of focuses on kind of how uh, the changes have been to air travel. So every few, uh, every few years we see massive changes to how air travel is conducted um, some of which have been brought on by um, tragedies such as 9-11, um, which brought about security changes. Lockerbie here in the UK brought about changes to baggage policies. Um, some of it is brought about by business opportunity, for example, uh, the introduction of airport duty-free shopping in 1947. Airlines like Southwest, Ryanair here in the UK, my, uh, making air travel a lot cheaper. And of course, uh, open skies agreements. In most cases, uh, most of these cases, industry and government are responsible for the changes. So, do you think, in COVID, the case of COVID nineteen, is it? Do you think it's going to bring about similar massive changes uh, or permanent changes uh, within the industry? And do you think these changes will be driven by the consumer or by the industry itself? Uh, you know, one thing I'll say about the earlier examples that you provided, you know, particularly the ones that were tragedy uh, related. I, I, one of the elements there was that affected everyone and everyone was so um, taken aback by those events that you, you had the general public rallying around, you know, solutions to ensure safety for everyone. You know, it's a slightly different, you know, situation here. I call it a slightly different personality trait um, that's driving some of these changes that you see right here uh, in, in the moment. Some of it's cultural, some of it's political, some of it is just, it's a very personal uh, issue, right? You know, how do you protect yourself, your, your children, your, your, your grandparents, your parents, along the like. So I think because of that, and because it is a very personally driven situation, and you're seeing it firsthand, sadly, with the friends becoming infected and suffering, and, and you know, obviously the tragedies of the, of the fatalities that have happened around the world, I think consumers will absolutely positively continue to demand that their safety around health and hygiene, and it will be permanent. That will be a permanent implementation across the industry. Um, because who knows if there's ever going to be a, another pandemic that happens, right? So you have to maintain that level of vigilance. And I think the public is just going to demand it going forward. So I think that'll be an element that will drive change that will happen. And then ultimately the industry itself. And in that aspect, I think about the airlines, right? 
So if, if, if you think about it, if passengers are placing such a significant importance on their health and safety, make no mistake, they're going to look and see which airlines are actually satisfying that need or that concern for themselves. Who's being vocal about it? Who is being you know, demonstrative and being able to illustrate all of the safety enhancements and features that they're doing from checking at the counter, going through security, you know, checking in at the gate, being on board the aircraft, you know, are you making your processes around cleanliness, you know, visible to, uh, to the public, people will see that. And I think people will actually gravitate potentially to those airlines that demonstrate that level of cleanliness and hygiene that suits a passenger's particular needs. We actually saw that in a similar context only when you think about in-flight entertainment indoor Wi-Fi capability on aircraft. There was a period of time when that was being introduced into the industry that passengers would actually specifically select certain aircraft that afforded them the capability of having in-flight connectivity while they were flying. So that became a discriminator for them in terms of picking a particular airline to go fly with. I think you're going to see exactly the same thing here, but on a much more in-depth personal level, because it's about you truly yourself, you know, your, your, your safety and health of you and your family. So it will become permanent. And I think airlines are going to have to, as an industry, adapt the necessary changes, or they potentially be losing passenger traffic to those other airlines that will implement those appropriate measures. Um, Jim, so you, you mentioned about working with airlines and I experienced this real time just last week as we were traveling back from our work trip with my coworkers where we were all booked on different airlines and we did so because uh, here in the US, for example, Delta Airlines still is reserving that middle seat for social distancing. While I was on United Airlines, they've gone away from that already. Um, so here in the US, at least we have that, we have that choice um, where we're able to 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 travel on airlines that we perceive, like you're talking about, as being safer. How so, Honeywell? How do, how does Honeywell work with either airlines that don't necessarily have the resources, or those smaller airlines in emerging economies where where they may not have the money to put forth? But we all realize that this is a global pandemic, and that that travel on you know on on an African airline or a South uh, Southeast Asian airline. Now that that traveler may be transitioning over to a mainline air, airline. So how does Honeywell approach and work with those airlines? So I think um, we have to understand the unique nuances of each, right? And what ultimately their needs are. You know, some of the lower cost carriers, as we would call them, um, um, they don't necessarily always travel on international routes. They may remain domestic within their particular region. And, and they'll, they'll develop technologies that they could use um, and processes that they have in place to maintain the cleanliness. I mean, the solutions that we've come up with, and in particular, one of them being around UV treatment of the interior of an aircraft, it is an exceedingly low-cost implementation of a solution that has great ease in application and, and can actually cleanse an aircraft um, in relatively short order of time. And you could do a single aisle, you know, uh, Boeing indoor Airbus aircraft in as little as 10 minutes, you know, by using this equipment on board the aircraft. 
And you actually can funnel and develop different business models around to support that airline, whether they want to do an outright purchase, whether they want to do a lease, whether they want to do a, a pay by the service sort of a solution. So, so clearly it, it has to be a solution if you're going to address the, the mass issue at hand that can support, you know, the, the low cost carrier or one that's on a tighter budget, maybe a smaller airline versus the larger airline, can they share resources? And a lot of these companies also as well, they outsource that service, by the way. They'll outsource the interior cleaning of the aircraft. And so we're working with those ground service companies as well to be able to afford them that opportunity to then introduce that. It doesn't have to be at a particular airline. This equipment can be shared across multiple airlines utilizing the same uh, terminal and or the same gate. Right. And so it doesn't have to be geared specifically to one airline and you just tailor the model to suit that airline's needs to provide them the solution that's that's comparable and usable for them. Jim, we've covered on previous episodes of uh, the show stories about airlines increasing standards of cleaning. I mean, we've we've had some quite shocking stories in the past about airlines that have kind of failed at cleaning uh, the the cabins, especially uh, between flights. But uh, we'll get on to Honeywell's innovations uh, in a little while. But what are the challenges, uh, do you think, that airlines are facing uh, that are vital to uh, keep the public flying that the general population might not think about when it comes to um, to that kind of thing, cleaning? Um, you know, I think one of the things in terms of keeping the general public, you know, flying and, and operational, I think the airlines are experiencing tremendous logistical challenges at the moment that I don't think the general public would actually see you know, firsthand. It, it's, it's about which airplane, which aircraft do you store? Do you not store them? Do you not place them in long-term storage? Do you cycle aircraft through um, in terms of the limited routes that you're flying at the moment? I mean, and the, the logistical challenges around uh, air crews, um, ground handlers, uh, maintaining safety protocols for them as well. I mean, all of the issues that we're seeing on a daily basis, that airline is also facing in every aspect of their daily operation as well. So they have to keep their crews um, and their employees safe, you know, during this environment, which is difficult as well as, for, as it is for everyone and what we're doing. But I think the, the logistical aspect is really what I find that they're struggling with the most and how to handle that. When does the recovery happen? When do you start to see that? When do you start to see long haul versus short haul? And I just think there's a general sentiment around that, that the public doesn't necessarily see that, right? That, that how involved that is and how complex and complicated that is for an airline to be able to do that and do that efficiently and effectively. Then the other aspect that they're facing with is, is, is revenue, right? You know, how are they surviving during this pandemic where, you know, with significantly reduced capacities worldwide that are happening, they're having to convert aircraft from passenger aircraft to cargo aircraft, remove all the seats and generate alternate sources of revenue to be able to do this. They're flying planes completely empty and using the bellies, you know, just to bring cargo as a source of revenue to make that happen. Um, so I think those are just challenges that, that folks don't necessarily, the general public wouldn't necessarily see or feel, but definitely have become exceptionally challenging for airlines during this, during these times. Yeah, so one of the other things, airports um, are going along the lines of the airports, Jim, that are, are obviously less busier now. Uh, which makes social distancing easier, but they face their own challenges with 
document checks, etc. So a few weeks ago, we uh, had a story where Emirates uh, over in the UAE was introducing uh, touchless check-in facilities, biometric uh, boarding. Uh, Spirit Airlines also with uh, biometric check-in available. Automated airport cleaning robots as well we've covered on the show uh, across the globe and places like Stuttgart, JFK, Orlando uh, using crowd radar, uh, 3D stereo vision and predictive analysts to perform crowd control and minimize queuing even before boarding. Um, with all this innovation and technology that's been, been coming in over the last kind of 12 months with, with COVID, do you think airports will continue to use all these technologies after we kind of get to the the, the good side, you know, the, the the better side of where we are currently with COVID, or do you think they'll sort of go back to the old ways of uh, you know check old style check in with uh, tickets or you know for mobile phones? I, I think these new technologies will remain in place. Um, I think it's actually a great passenger experience um, uh, to be able just to do a touchless check in, you know, throughout that entire process. Um, uh, and I think that actually promotes a, a nicer experience ultimately at the end of the day. I mean, it's clearly driven or has been driven and accelerated for implementation due to the COVID environment that we're operating in. But I think those are great things that can happen that improve efficiency uh, throughout that entire process while also promoting social distancing and, and, and hygiene cleanliness and, and, and maintaining safety and health for individuals. So I think that will be a permanent thing that would be implemented and go across the board. But you bring up a very interesting point, right? I mean, so travel is severely constrained. You go to an airport today um, or transitioning through an airport, you know, the shops are closed, the restaurants are closed. You may see one restaurant open in many regards. That's what happens to me when I've traveled throughout Europe uh, here recently over the last six or so months. Um, and, and, and what you see is you'll see one coffee shop open or one restaurant open and you'll see a hundred people in line. And you'll see those hundred people literally wrapping down the terminal because they're maintaining social distancing. Imagine the logistical challenges that that airport terminal is going to have if you tripled that capacity and you had 300 people in there, 500 people or a thousand people in there and trying to maintain social distancing as a result of introducing now a mass amount of people in there. So we've been working very closely through one of our other business groups, working very closely with airports to try to manage that process, right? How do you go through that? And so we developed systems that we've deployed and are deploying in certain airports to help manage that aspect of it, right? You know, you can look at facial recognition, artificial intelligence, you can um, map the traffic through the facility, you can get real-time diagnostics and analytics that come out of that on a dashboard at a main control center for the airport to be able to look and see and identify if there are some issues around folks not wearing masks, too much crowd in this area, how do you maintain the airflow or control the airflow to help improve it in particular areas and what actions can you take? So I think those technologies are going to remain, and I think it's good. I think that's for the betterment of the industry and for the betterment of the blind public anyways to have those. And in many cases, I think those were on roadmaps to happen anyway. It just ended up getting introduced at a much faster pace than anybody anticipated because there was a, dying, a, a desire and a true need in the industry to make it happen. Jim, uh, so one of the questions from the chat room is from uh, Stephen, who is a regional airline pilot. And... Uh, 
myself included, we know Honeywell as an avionics manufacturer. Uh, until I was reading the article that you put out just a few weeks ago uh, about uh, infrared technology and, and temperature sensing, uh, what are some of the things that Honeywell R&D, for most of us that don't know if there is uh, an R&D department, I'm sure there is, but how, how is uh, Honeywell R&D advancing technology? How are they looking at the problem sets that you're talking about and then addressing those and approaching the customers? So, so I think one of the things to recognize is we're not looking at the problem statement as Honeywell, truly just from an aerospace perspective, okay? Um, if you look at our sister divisions within Honeywell, one of them that I described here about airport implementation of those solutions comes from our Honeywell Building Technology Solutions Group. So it's a non-aero entity producing solutions in an airport environment that happens to be supporting you know, the aero industry, right? And so we do a lot of cross collaboration and recognition of what our other divisions are doing to find solutions that can be applicable across the board. Another one of our divisions is our safety and product solutions group. This is the group that manufactures your N95 mask, you know, all of your personal protective equipment, something you wouldn't necessarily on the surface think that that's something that Honeywell does, right? If you're into the aviation aerospace aspect of our businesses, but it is a core business within Honeywell and a very large business within Honeywell. So we offer those PPE, personal protection equipment packages to the airlines. We're offering them to passengers. We offer them you know, to the crews as well. And we've actually increased N95 production at multiple locations around the world. We've brought plants online in record time for producing N95 masks. And so, again, we look at this in a very holistic picture. We see a problem statement for any aspect of our divisions can solve. It doesn't matter if it's an aerospace industry, but if we have a solution from another division, we will bring that, work with our customers on what their problem statements are, and then bring them solutions. Well, Jim, as a, a, both a consumer of the aviation industry and a worker in the aviation industry, I, I appreciate all everything that, that a company like Honeywell is doing to to solve these problems because it's, um, you know, I, I, I want to see the industry uh, rise again. Uh, you know, uh, Carlos, did you have Likewise, yep. <laughs> yeah, Nev, uh, you've got um, a question, haven't you? Yes, I was just going to ask you, uh, Jim, uh, on the Honeywell website, we were looking at the other day, you uh, talk about the Honeywell UV treatment system for use on commercial airlines. Although it doesn't say that the product has not, not been specifically tested uh, on the COVID-19 virus, but do you think after we get back to some kind of normality within the airline industry, uh, airlines will want to continue to use and purchase these machines uh, to make sure that their aircraft are properly sanitized and cleaned? I think they will. And I think it kind of goes to what I was saying a little bit earlier, right? I think the public wants to see technology implemented to drive the health and safety, you know, for themselves. And, um, and what you see there in terms of our, our UV equipment is literally a beverage cart size piece of equipment that you can run up and down the aisle of an aircraft and provide that uniform, consistent, reliable cleaning as opposed to what's currently done in many applications where it was a manual process, right? You had crews going through, they got two minutes to clean the aircraft or wiping things down, getting off the aircraft, bringing passengers back in. You know, that's not necessarily a reliable process. And, and folks, I think, would tend to want to go and lean towards a technology 
um, to use and actually to generate that, that health and safety aspect of what I described a moment ago. So I think that's going to stay and I think it will continue in its application going forward. Um, we've seen tremendous interest uh, with that. You know, JetBlue has done trials with it um, as well as we've got some key customers in the, in the Middle East and throughout Europe that are using that technology. Um, I, I also think, you know, folks are, are kind of scrambling a little bit about what to do relative to this, right? And so I think a lot of it is reactionary. Um, but I think once everybody starts realizing, you know, again, the availability of the product, the consistency of the product, how well it performs. And it's not just because of COVID. I mean, I mean, this is this is a product that addresses pathogens and addresses bacteria, right? At the end of the day, it's it's a tried and proven technology that exists in used, you know, extensively in hospitals as an example. We've just, we've just taken the technology and implemented it into a uh, an application and in a form factor that's useful within an aircraft. So it's not brand new technology, it's just adapting it for a need that's required in the industry for the airlines. And I think it's something that should stay. Absolutely. I, th I think it's funny that, uh, you know, I think we've all joked around, at least on the, on this show. Well, that's great that the pandemic has has increased all these uh, safety protocols. But what was happening before the pandemic? <laughs> you know, we, we've done plenty of stories on the show about, uh, well, you know, humans, when you when you trap humans in a pressurized tube for 10 hours, uh, things are going to happen. So, right. <laughs> so right. I'm glad no, we're agree. doing all this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, Jim, we started uh, a lot a while ago now we started something called the plain truth and one of the first subjects that we did actually there was talking about like air quality in the cabin and mm -hmm. uh, i was just uh, really interested to sort of learn you know what, what are the general risks to the the passenger and are there what are the some of the things that honeywell are doing in regards to this particular area so i think the first thing i would say first and foremost i think it is all of ours personal responsibility to make sure that that we provide protections not only to ourselves and and to our our fellow passengers on the aircraft you know that that's putting on a mask uh, social distancing um don't fly if you're ill kind of a thing right and so i think that's important first and foremost okay now looking at the air quality within the aircraft itself i think one of the things that folks don't necessarily understand is we're not talking about stale air you know uh You'd be amazed at how many conversations I've had where folks think that the air in the aircraft, this is just a general flying public, um, not aviation enthusiasts, well, like yourselves, obviously, in your audience, but they, they don't necessarily understand that that's not stale air. That air is constantly being circulated because if you think about it, if it was stale air, at some point in time, we're going to run out of oxygen, you know, inside the tube of this aircraft. So as we educate people as we educate the general flying public to understand that the air inside of that cabin is recirculated depending upon the aircraft anywhere between 20 to 30 times per hour you'd be amazed at the shock i get from folks when they hear that right that means that air is circulated every two to three minutes within that aircraft and that's because of the way the system works or the environmental control system that is on board an aircraft operates um and, and, and not to get too technical with how that happens, right? But I mean, you're taking air, bleed air off of an engine, circulating it through scrubbers, filters, you know, the same kind of filters you would see in, in a hospital clean room environment, 
circulating it through the aircraft, refiltrating that, in, that air, bleeding it back off, recirculating new air through. So it's constantly being recirculated, much more than you would ever see in your home, much more than you would ever see in an office, much more than you would ever see in a restaurant or at the mall or in a store. So I think there's a sense that, that you're trapped in this stale air environment inside of a tube, when in actuality, it's, it's filtered air that is constantly at a very high volume being circulated through. Now, I mean, so again, but it kind of goes back to my original statement, right? I mean, we do have to accept some personal responsibility when we board the aircraft at the end of the day, right? But again, the, the, the way that that air is circulated, you know, and the studies that have been performed, independent studies that have been performed relative to this would indicate that it is safe. Absolutely. And uh, I was having a, a trawl through your website, actually, and one of the products I, I stumbled across was the ECS Performance Checker. Now, that piqued <laughs> my interest very much. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that, that kind of goes back to the system I was describing a moment ago, the environmental control system on board the aircraft. And specifically what this entails is you're thinking about you know, how do, how do we ensure maximum efficiency and performance of that system to provide the, the scenario that I described a moment ago? And so what this system does ultimately is you, we look, we provide airlines an opportunity to look at the aircraft data, analyze the data, assess the quality of the air, assess the circulation parameters and characteristics inside the cabin as a result. And then with those analytics, you can make real-time decisions, you know, on board uh, when, when the aircraft arrives uh, at its destination of how well is it performing? Do I need to make some changes to it? Do I need to make some uh, repair or remove and replace, you know, equipment on board the aircraft in order to provide that same high level of performance throughout the entire operation of the system on board the aircraft? And that's what it's referring to is those real-time analytics and data that an airline can make proactive decisions to maintain the integrity the um, and the proficient uh, uh, operation and efficient operation of that system. Wow, really interesting. Thanks. Oh. Yeah, uh, John, a longtime friend of mine, he's talking about, uh, he's also a, a career and professional airline pilot. Um, he's curious if you guys have looked at UV lights being integrated into the aircraft interior lights? Very good question. <laughs> I think one of the things you have to consider there, um, and it's an excellent idea, by the way, um, is how that application uh, occurs, right, on board the aircraft, right? And so if you think about our system that we've actually deployed, um, very low cost solution, as I've mentioned, highly efficient, and it's configured such that through running it up and down the single aisle of the aircraft, you're getting the seats, you're getting the tray tables, you're getting uh, the baggage compartments. And when you run it back up the system to get it off the aircraft, open the baggage compartments. Now you're doing the interior of the baggage compartments, put the tray tables up, you're getting the exterior surface or put them back down, you're getting the interior surface. So you do that pass one time. And again, it's that very consistent and, and again, you know, dosages, proximity to the surface all have implications on how well you can clean those surfaces ultimately. So I think it's a good idea, but I, I don't know if the practicality of doing that, you know, and being able to maintain that consistency, how well that would work. The second thing that I would say relative to that is you have to worry about certification. 
right? This is not an onboard piece of equipment. You do not leave it on the aircraft when you're flying, like storing it in a beverage cart area, right? You apply it, think of it as a ground service, or you apply it, you, you run the system up and down the aircraft, and you bring it back off the aircraft, right? So there's no certification requirements associated with that. Again, maintaining the low cost application that you have here, as opposed to if you're physically installing something on the aircraft that becomes permanent, now you've got to worry about the certification aspects along that as well. And I think then it becomes to many of these customers potentially cost prohibitive to do that when you have this other low cost, highly efficient, repeatable system and process. Because part of the um, part of the your website does say on there, Jim, as well that, that the the actual system itself is very, as you say, cost effective, and I'm guessing the system itself for the airlines to purchase is relatively, um, you know, not non expensive. Yes, it, it is right, and as I mentioned, I think earlier there are a couple of different mo business models, right? You can do. Uh, an outright purchase of the equipment. You can do a, a pay by the use kind of a scenario. Uh, leasing of the equipment. Um, so that, again, a couple of different scenarios of how you want to do it. I think that's up to the airline to decide how they want, will want to handle that for their perspective uh, situation or specific need. But what we've estimated is that when I say low cost, I'm, I'm talking about $10 an application, wow. right? That that's oh, wow. literally what you're thinking mm -hmm. about here. So for, for, so for 10 bucks, you know, in about a 10 minute period of time, you can run this system up there, down the aircraft, back up the aircraft, out the aircraft, and you've app applied a UV application. And then some of the newer systems that we're developing also have a hand wand as well, right? And so if you want to use the hand wand, if you think about that system that I described and that you've shown here, a um, little difficult to get that inside of a lavatory, right? So bring a, put a hand wand on, on the cart as well, right? Use the same power source. Now you can use a hand wand inside the cabin. You can do a hand wand inside the cockpit as well and do nope. UV cleaning inside the cockpit as well with that application, right? So multi-uses, uh, both up and down through the main cabin itself, um, as well as um, the applications I described for a lavatory and or, and or a cockpit. And we've had two versions of this that came out. You know, the first version uh, was kind of more of a prototype. You know, get a lot of feedback from customers. So we developed it literally within a couple of months. Um, got it out, got it into airlines, let them do demos on board the aircraft. You know, we found we've learned a lot from doing that, right? Not every aircraft configuration is the same. If you can use this on dual aisle, first class, business class, they're all a little bit different. And so we learned a lot from that process as well. And so we incorporated that into the second gen system now that has application across the board. I'm, I'm really glad to hear you uh, address the cockpit issue because we were, that was one of the questions that I had um, written down is we focused a lot on the cabin, everything from the bulkhead back and passenger safety and, mm -hmm. and, and passenger impressions of safety. Yet at the front, we were still, <laughs> we were still just getting a, a, a sanit a sanitary wipe and then, and then just having to, cause you, the avionics, you can't get them wet. You can't just spray right. everything down. And then some of the screens, you have to have a special material uh, or a special spray that you, that you can't do on the touch screens and this one for this screens. And, and we just, honestly, we just didn't have time in our terms to, to really wipe down the entire flight deck area. So this, this hand wand is, is uh, it's really great to hear that you guys have addressed that too for the flight crew. Yes, yes, absolutely, uh, absolutely. 
So Megan in the chat room, um, so moving a, a little bit away from commercial aviation and something that Honeywell is into, and we've done plenty of stories on uh, urban mobility and unmanned aircraft and eVTOL, the, the evolution in all that, that technology. Has, has the pandemic or have concerns in global health uh, changed the way the, direct, or the way or the direction that Honeywell is approaching that that urban mobility um, or, or has, uh, has uh, hospital systems or, or, or just public safety changed the way that you guys are viewing that industry? Yeah, I, I wish I was knowledgeable enough in that area of what we're doing um, to be able to answer that question effectively, to be honest with you. We do have a, a, a division within our aerospace group that's led by a colleague of mine who is only focused on UAM, UAS applications and what we're doing in that technology space. Um, it's a very early on also type of, type of technology that's being deployed. So I honestly, just from lack of being involved in that part of our business to any level of depth to be able to answer the question as to whether or not they've been focused on that. But if it's something that's truly interesting to find out, we can put you definitely in contact with that individual to be able to provide you that sort of input and guidance. I appreciate that because we're all in the same boat. <laughs> it's all new to us. We, we all love, you know, we're talking about DC-3s, Carlos's L-1011s, and every week we do just more and more stories about urban mobility and eVTOL, and, mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're in the same boat learning, yep. learning uh, about it. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating space yeah. and a fascinating market for sure. Well, Jim, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you, and thank you very much indeed for all of your time and effort uh, today. But there's just one final question that we ask all of our guests that come on the show, uh, if you don't mind. And that is, if you were flying an aircraft and you had the choice to fly any aircraft, either commercial, military, general aviation, uh, past or present or, or retired even, what would that aircraft be? You know, um, I, I'm not overly familiar with all of the various military aircraft that are out there, so I probably would state the wrong one. <laughs> but I will tell you, there's something I would love to be able to have an opportunity to do, and that is to fly aboard a fighter aircraft. Oh, wow. Um, that's something for me that I, I think would be fascinating. I've, I've had, you know, obviously um, flown many commercial aircraft. I've, I've had the pleasure of flying on many different types of corporate aircraft, the business aircraft, um, general aviation aircraft. I've never had the experience of flying in a military aircraft. And for me, if I had to pick one, it would have to be a, a fighter jet at the end of the day. I don't know how well I would do, to be honest with you, though. <laughs> I may last about a minute or so at best, and then I'll probably forget the entire experience. Yeah, I know, but what a minute, eh? That would be like the best minute ever. <laughs> It'd be a great minute. A fantastic minute, indeed. Absolutely. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, uh, Jim, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a real uh, pleasure to have you on. We're going to move on to the next part of the show now, and that is The Plain Truths. And this week, we're learning all about turning circles. Hello, and welcome to another Plain Truth. And this week, we're going to be talking about aircraft turning circles. Joining me, as always, is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. 
Hello, Matt. Right, so my car, my coach has got a... My car's fine, I have to be honest. The C-Max is awesome. The turning circle is great. Uh, in the coach, not so much, it has to be said. And that actually got me thinking because, obviously, um, aircraft sort of strike me as not the most agile things when they're on the ground. Uh, I mean, what's the turning circle like on, on something like the A320? Okay, it's a really good question. And actually, to be perfectly honest... Aeroplanes aren't too bad. We've gone a long way from the days of when aircraft were like a shopping trolley on the ground. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so, for example, when I used to fly the Jetstream 41, uh, for younger viewers, uh, that was a 29-seat uh, turboprop uh, designed and built by the British. If you turned the steering tiller, because remember the yoke doesn't do anything on the ground for turning... Uh, if you turned the steering tiller too far, uh, the nose wheel would come off the steering rack. Oh. So, <laughs> wow. so, uh, so then you had lost control of the nose wheel, so you had to try to catch it back up by using brakes or asymmetric thrust to try to get it back on the steering rack. Okay? So we've we progressed somewhat from there. Um, the, the A320 family is uh, really quite good. Uh, the steering is all... Uh, steer by wire so we fly by wire and we steer by wire so it's all quite electronic and it does take a little bit of getting used to um, however we have quite a lot of maneuverability because that nose wheel can turn by quite a long way so let me give you an example on the a320 not the family but the a320 if you were to put the nose of the aeroplane, well, just for simple terms, one foot away from the hangar door. So you've taxied the aeroplane up to the hangar, you've stopped to one foot short, and you think, oh, no, it's the wrong hangar. We should be on the one over there. We need to turn around. So you can't find anybody to open the hangar doors to get a tug in to push you back. On the A320, the geometry or the turning circle is such that you can turn the aeroplane around in its own length and not hit the wingtip on the hangar. Wow, okay. So if you think about it, it can just turn around in its own length and you won't hit the wing as you turn around. So that's pretty impressive. Don't try it on a 321, it won't work. <laughs> you will put the wingtip through the hangar and you won't be popular. Now... Let's look at this in a, in a practical sense. So we're going to go to an airport, and the runway is a standard runway width, which is 45 metres wide. And when they built the airport, they put the taxiway, the taxiway, from the runway to the terminal in the middle. Now, we are not able to stop by that point, not without squashing everybody's nose into the seat back in front of them. So we have to go past that exit. And the runway doesn't have turning circles. So we have to turn around in 45 metres. The A320 and the 321 can do that. 320 with ease, the 321 requires a little bit of technique. And where you position the aircraft is quite important. There are a set of instructions for it in the manual. <laughs> um, you have to give some consideration to the fact of the runway surface, uh, because as we've talked about previously, uh, aeroplanes handle differently on wet runways, snow-covered runways. They'll skid more. Um, so 
as you put more steering input into the nose wheel, the aeroplane still wants to go forward, so it will just skid to the nose wheel. And occasionally, if you're sat at the front of an aircraft, you'll hear the nose wheel skidding as they turn, because they may be just going a little bit fast. Mm -hmm. Or the nose wheel is on the white or yellow line, as we know, those painted lines, especially if you're a motorbiker, um, <laughs> are, are skiddy as heck. So the, the, the nose wheel will skid. So that's all fine and dandy. We can turn the aeroplane around. Now, if we're going in a bigger aeroplane, uh, we can't turn around on a 45-meter wide runway. So I'll give you an example. The A330, depending on which variant you bought, may or may not be able to turn on a 45-meter runway. The ones that Monarch had weren't able, well, at least not by the books anyway. So you better have a turning circle down the end. They're called dumbbells, if you like. They're just an extended bit of the runway. Two blobs put on the end gives you a bit more room to work with. Again, it can be a little bit tight. Um, and this is a consideration if you're operating large aircraft because it may well be that the runway is long enough and wide enough for you to land on, but you have to consider whether you can turn around on it because if it's a long runway and say it's, you know, 800 metres or 1,000 metres from one end to, to the terminal, no one is going to particularly enjoy getting off the aeroplane, walking a kilometre to the terminal because you couldn't turn the aeroplane around <laughs> and there wasn't anybody with a tug to be able to do that. So it is a, a big consideration. Equally, when we taxi the aeroplane around, we have to think about where the wingtips are and the wheels because if you're operating a large aircraft, the taxiways need to be wide enough for you as well and also strong enough to support the aircraft. So there are lots of taxiways that you can't operate wide-bodied aircraft in because you will hit the lights with the wingtips. Right. So uh, there is a, a, a famous story from Days of Monarch where uh, a captain fastidiously followed the taxiway markings in a 330 and promptly removed part of the wingtip because he hit a palm tree because the taxiway markings were not designed for a 330. They were designed for a Tupolev. Right. So, yeah, there is a lot to be considered. <laughs> but ultimately, aeroplanes are quite manoeuvrable. The one thing that the majority of them can't do is reverse. So you have oh. to think about your exit strategy especially if you're going to somewhere where you're not sure if there is a tug and a tow bar that will fit your aircraft. Right. So uh, with that in mind then, I mean, how much of an impact uh, would, for example, an icy runway have on your ability to leave the runway and go to your gate, for example? I mean, does that have an impact on, on the manoeuvrability of the aircraft? Absolutely. It has a, a, has a huge factor. It's exactly the same as, you know, as your car, if you like. Um, you know, if you're trying to park your car in a car park and it's icy, um, it's your car's going to be less manoeuvrable because the wheels are just slipping everywhere. And one of the problems that we have operating to uh, wintry airports, it's an environmental issue, actually. Um, taxiways and runways are quite often um, sort of well removed of contaminants, so de-iced, anti-iced, etc., and they will put fluid down on, on those. Once you get onto the parking apron, 
it's quite often quite treacherous there because for environmental reasons there and cost of course because this stuff is expensive but not very good for the environment so they're not so well uh, prepared and many many years ago when I was on an Embraer 145 I was parking the aircraft in Oslo Gardamone and as we were turning onto the parking stand I went to brake to slow the aircraft down and the aeroplane just started to skid and it's just going forwards with you know the, the, the wheels are locked it's just merrily slipping forward and in the end, we actually had to shut the engines down because that was the only way we were going to stop was, was you know, to, to turn off the thrust and just come to a gentle halt. And we did about a foot away from a snowbank, which was quite fortunate because <laughs> it kept the paperwork to a minimum. Right, yes. But yes, it, it can be very slippy. And of course, your ability to make tight turns is seriously degraded when the runway or the taxiway is wet because the wheels will just slip. Right. Um, and as I mentioned to you, the nose wheel has a tendency to skid anyway, especially if there's not a lot of weight at the front because it's just sat, you know, with a light contact to the ground. It doesn't take much to push it forwards, regardless of which way the wheels are pointing. Quite. Because, of course, the engines don't swivel. No, no, indeed. Uh, well, as always, Al, a very complicated subject that is made very simple. As always, many thanks, Al. It's my pleasure. If you want to improve your 737 knowledge, why not attend one of our live technical refresher courses? These two-day webinars are not just a Zoom call, nor are they just an instructor stood in front of a whiteboard. Our professional production team in their London studio uses the latest technology to bring you a fully interactive and engaging experience. Ask your instructor questions live at any time. For more information and to sign up, visit 737lounge.com. Wow, that was quite the interview. That was really good. Yeah, I enjoyed really, that. Really, really good. Yeah, Jim is uh, very lovely informative chat, yeah. indeed. Had yeah. a lovely chat, didn't we? Sort of like yeah. affair. That was really nice. Mm. Absolutely. Yes, it's very good. So, uh, thanks again to uh, to Jim at Honeywell for coming on the show. Mm. Uh, very much appreciated by everyone in the chat room and everyone who listens to the show. So, indeed. Uh, right. Excellent. We're going to need to so get cracking on <laughs> to the next part of the show then. And if everyone's ready, we're going to do some commercial news stories. Here we go. So kicking off this week's first commercial news story, this one comes to us from Bloomberg.com. Uh, and uh, this the headline of this is, uh, Matt. Oh, Bombardier. Sorry. Drops <laughs> iconic Learjet to focus on luxury models. So Bombardier in, <laughs> will You're not stop. saying it right. Sorry, Bombardier. I have ruined it for everyone, will, haven't I? I know, I know. <laughs> we need a sound clip for that one. No, we don't. <laughs> so Bombardier will stop Bombardier! making Sorry. will stop making the Learjet planes and cut one thousand six hundred jobs oh. <laughs> as part of a wide ranging plan to boost profitability and reduce costs. Production of the iconic aircraft, uh, which came to on the market almost six decades ago, will cease in the fourth quarter. The Montreal-based manufacturer said in a statement on Thursday. Uh, they said that they will allow the company to focus on its larger, faster and more lucrative challenger and global business jets. 
They said that given the increasingly uh, challenge market dynamics we have made this difficult decision, said Chief Executive Officer Eric Martel. The move uh, will go towards a cost-saving target of $400 million annually uh, by 2023, Montreal-based Bombardier said, including $100 million this year. So Bombardier's decision to shutter the Learjet line by the end of 2021 confirms the intensity of competition within the small to medium cabin business jet market. Model by inventor Bill Lear on a Swiss fighter aircraft made in Wichita, Kansas, the Learjet has racked up more than 3,000 deliveries since 1963's debut and was once the etoma of luxury travel for celebrities like Frank Sinatra. Good choice. It's uh, <laughs> since fallen out of favor. I'm a big Sinatra fan, by the way. It's since fallen out of favor, uh, though, as private plane buyers switch to larger and more comfortable longer range models. And I'd imagine such as kind of the the lovely, gorgeous uh, BBJ, the Boeing business jet. But uh, yeah, it's a shame, guys. Um, obviously, one of Matt's favorite business jets. Um, and oh, I think it is, uh, a, it is a true shame, Carlos. This is, <laughs> this is I mean, the iconic business jet right here was the Learjet. And everybody, before Gulfstream, everybody who was anybody wanted a Learjet. And there's still plenty of them flying, but it's going to be sad to, to, to know that the manufacturing line has ended. Have you noticed as, as well that over the years, you know, people have referred to a, um, you know, any kind of business uh, or biz jet aircraft as a Learjet, uh, even if it wasn't, a bit like <laughs> Hoover. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, ain't that the truth, actually? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be such a shame, isn't it? It's such going to be so sad to see this iconic aircraft not being made anymore. But I guess, you know, progress is, is progress. Well, perhaps there'll be a cheap second-hand one for us to buy for PTUK. You never know. Right. Okay. So, Matt, the next one, uh, this story is for you, Matt. And uh, obviously, this website, I think, is going to be... Game changing for some passengers. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know about that, but we'll see. We'll see what the. I've just realised I haven't put my camera on. Bear with me a moment. There we go. Sorry about that. Too many buttons to press. Uh, there's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, Story 2 isn't the usual story, it has to be said, but we're talking about a very fascinating website here, and the headline um, from various sources, actually, the Independent, uh, One Mile at a Time, and Turn, Turbil, uh, Turbly itself, Turbly, Turbly. sorry, itself, as new website for passengers to look at possible turbulence. Now, I find this very exciting, because uh, the, the few negative experiences that I, I, do, I do remember uh, of, my t- of my time flying and that is... Um, it does very much involve turbulence. So anyway, we'll t- we'll we'll take a look at the website shortly because Nev's going to explain to me all the things I don't understand about it. Uh, but uh, Turbly is a new website that hopes to provide travellers with accurate turbulent turbulence predictions based on forecasts produced by the NOAA and the NWS. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration slash National Weather Service, which are also used by pilots for flight planning. With Turbly, uh, you can look up a forecast for any flight within 36 hours Uh, just enter your origin and destination Uh, choosing your flight will allow you to access predictions based on wind conditions your aircraft type uh, predicted routes etc etc it also shows uh, you how wind speeds compare on the day to the average and whether that could mean an early or late arrival that's an interesting step isn't it uh turbly is developed and maintained by dr 
Ignacio Gallio uh, Marcos, a CFD engineer. Uh, some aircraft data and parameters are sourced from the site Sky... Is it Skybrary? Skybrary, Sky, yeah. Skybrary and Open Sky. But instead of me going on and on about it, I think probably the best thing we can do... Nev, you're going to help me with this, aren't you? So I'm now going to pop up the uh, the website, technology permitting. He says this is where it will all go horribly wrong, won't it? Um, and uh, so I'm now going to pop the website up on screen and together we're going to uh, pick a flight. So uh, go on then, Nev. Where are we going to fly yeah, so- from? What you've got to do is, is put your uh, departure airport in on the left-hand side there. So let's say it's Heathrow. So just start typing London. There you go. There we go. Yeah. Heathrow. And where should we go to? Let's go to... Malta. <laughs> let's go, well, we could do. I'm not sure. If, are they operating at the moment? Probably not. So let's, yeah. let's, let's go to Dubai. So that's, okay, I've heard, I've heard of that. Yeah. That's DXB. So there we go. Right, there, there we go. go. All right. And let's go tomorrow because yep. I think they've probably... Probably finished for the day now, haven't they? Yes, to be And then fair. you hit the search button and just like that, it comes up with a selection of flights that are flying tomorrow from Heathrow to Dubai. What time are we flying then, Nev? Let's go at 9.10, I fancy. Okay, uh, fancy uh, an early departure. Okay, yes, fair enough. There we are. Here we go. Right, so we'll just chug away for a minute. For a bit, goes away and thinks about it, and then it comes up with a fascinating piece of data, which um, I presumably it's based on you know historic flights as well and, and that kind of thing. Um, presumably we're on the fifty-six k modem, which is why it's not going. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Finally, it is. Uh, now, actually, all, all jokes aside, though, I mean, there's there's a lot of data sources that it's having to collate here, isn't it, to get this information? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Now, first of all, it tells you what aircraft you're going on. So it's a Boeing triple seven three hundred, I think. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. Just about to see that. It also tell, it tells you the weight. 299 tonnes. Uh, I don't know how quite they get that. I presume that's without passengers and without okay. fuel. I don't, right. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. It says that it's got two jet engines, which we like. That, that's, that's a good that's thing. That's a positive, yeah. And also talks about the sort of predicted altitude that you're going to be flying at. And then it comes up with a graph of the expected turbulence in the area um, in terms of time along the bottom. And I can't quite see... Oh, and the severity of turbulence... Along on on the vertical axis, but it also rather than you having to decipher all that for yourself, um, it actually comes up with um, uh, more readable information like bumpy climb but smooth during the rest of the flight. Um, and in some cases, if you scroll down, I think it also tells you about arrival time, uh, prevailing winds, this kind of stuff. And obviously, if you end up with a, a tailwind, um, you end up arriving earlier than you expected as well. And if, if that is the case, uh, it will tell you. But in, in this case here, it says uh, similar tailwind as usual, likely to arrive on time. So it just gives you some, some data about previous flights, I would imagine. Uh, and um, yeah, t- tells you the uh, the weather conditions at either end of the journey. So a smooth takeoff and a smooth landing. So I like that's quite that. interesting. I now do. I don't know whether this is a, a good thing for the nervous flyer or a bad <laughs> thing. I've, I've not decided yet. I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to wait until there's some really ropey weather out there. I'm going to have a look at it and see. What it's, <laughs> Actually, see Miles what High in the chat room says um, he says so. I could search and choose the flight that will have the most turbulence. Great trip. 
Right, yeah. okay. I, I can see you doing that, Matt, searching for the most... Do you know what? No, I'm all right. Yeah, no, all right. no, I'll give that a miss, thank you. I'll go for the... Uh, I like this one here. If I'm going to go, like, if I'm going to go to, to Dubai, I'll pro- I, I, I desperately need to go to at some point. So smooth takeoff and smooth landing works for me. I've got to be honest. That works <laughs> for me. Oh, dear. Anyway, uh, great website. And uh, we'll move on it's to the next yeah. story. So, Nev, uh, moving on to you next for a BA story. Oh, this is the, this is a shocker. This is when I read this story yesterday. My goodness, it's on the simpleflying.com website, and it uh, says that the, a brand new British Airways Boeing seven eight seven ten is sent directly to storage. <gasps> so, one year on from when BA was meant to take delivery of its first dash ten aircraft, the airline is still only flying two of the type. It looks as though the other aircraft could be a little way off as well. But yesterday, a brand new 787-10 bound for BA was sent to Victorville, known for its aircraft storage facilities. Now, normally, of course, we always look forward to seeing uh, the um, uh, aircraft coming out of uh, Everett or, or wherever, wherever they come from, um, straight into uh, Heathrow, and then a couple of weeks later, it's in, in revenue service. But originally, BA had a plan to take a six 787-10 aircraft during last year. In reality, the airline only received two of them, and even those two uh, that BA did receive uh, seem to have been delayed. But since taking delivery of two of those in one week, BA hasn't seen any further arrivals of its type. Now, according to BOE family flights, three future 787-10s bound for BA have now been built and painted. In fact, uh, two of these have already completed flights. So despite this, it seems that there won't be delivered any time soon. Uh, so yesterday, Golf Zulu Bravo Lima Delta, which is BA's fourth Dash 10, completed its first f- first cross-country flight. However, rather than heading towards London, the aircraft flew west, still in Boeing's care. Uh, so according to r- uh, data from Radarbox.com, the aircraft departed Charleston at uh, 9.19 Eastern Standard Time, having flown for four hours and 38 minutes. The Dash 10 touchdown in Victorville, California at 10.57 Pacific Standard Time. Uh, as we know, Victorville is well known for storing aircraft because it's been home to many grounded 737 Maxes, including uh, the Southwest Fleet. And additionally, it's currently home to most of Qantas's uh, Airbus A3, A380 fleet. Now, I can't remember any time that's, that BA have had an aircraft delivered that it's just gone directly into storage because they have no need for it at the moment. Amazing. I mean, for, forgive my naivety. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very naive when it comes to this sort of thing. But surely when you've got a brand spanking new aircraft that's just come out of the hangar and it's all yours, ready to rock, surely it would be one of the older aircraft that would go into storage. Yeah, I think the problem is that they have got, well, obviously Heathrow at the moment is is short of space. And I would imagine that it's charging airlines quite a lot of money to store aircraft there as well. Imagine how many flights aren't actually operating at the moment. So even Mm. by, uh, you know, to to fuel up an aircraft, one of their other 787s or an A350 or something, send that into storage. You know, there's a lot of cost associated with that as well. But uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose it's the lesser of two evils probably, isn't it? by the sounds of it yeah i think you're right i think you are right hmm. sad though very sad armando over to you for a, another move over to the u.s for this story yeah this one's from the rob report united airlines believes that soon we'll be taking air taxis to the airport 
and it has just ponied up some big bucks to get in on that action. The airline just announced that it will invest more than $1 billion with a B in Archer Aviation, a startup developing electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, or eVTOL. So this startup says that its eVTOLs are being positioned as commuter air taxis. They'll be able to shuttle passengers 60 miles or so on a single charge and hit speeds up to 150 miles per hour. So while they're still in the prototype stage, like many other companies, the full-scale aircraft is scheduled to be unveiled later this year, with mass production slated for 2023. So according to Archer, jet setters can expect to see this zero-emissions aircraft servicing airports in United's major hubs by 2024. According to the United CEO, Scott Kirby, Archer's eVTOL design, manufacturing model, and engineering expertise has the clear potential to change how people commute within major metropolitan cities all over the world. Indeed, that airline uh, estimates that flying one of Archer's eVTOLs between Hollywood uh, and LAX, uh, so it's about, I don't know, it's not too far, about 10 miles, 15 miles, that could reduce uh, CO2 emissions uh, by up to 50% per passenger. Coincidentally, Los Angeles is one of the first cities that Archer plans to launch its fleet and one of United's largest hubs. So United isn't the only party getting in on this Archer action. Uh, Separately, the startup announced that it reached an agreement to merge with special purpose acquisition company, Atlas Crest Investment Corporation to become a publicly listed company. The combined company, soon to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, has an equity valuation of $3.8 billion with a B. Um, Anyway, so uh, this is uh, what we were talking about with Jim earlier and Honeywell, and everybody's getting in on on this eVTOL, um, but getting somebody like United Airlines in on it is pretty impressive. That Mm -hmm. means it's going forward. It's a big, it's a big step forward, isn't it? Really, or upwards, or upwards. Yeah, I see what you did. Yeah, yeah Jacob Darlington Brown is—he's uh, getting a bit sick of all these hearing about all these air taxi uh, stories. Uh, they have uh, never eventuated, and yet, does anyone really think that in two years' time we'll be actually flying in these? Well, I don't know. I mean, anything can. I mean, we're living in such strange times now. I think anything can happen in the. Next uh, half hour, as the program says. I, I like uh, Alex Robinson's uh, comment actually saying that I don't, I don't see how air taxis can be practical, uh, either that or barely affordable. I mean, that's probably a point, isn't it? <laughs> the first ones, it's like all these things, isn't it? When they first come out, they are not cheap. Well, it was Marty McFly. That, what, did, what did he fly to? October 21st, 2015, something like that. <laughs> so. Uh, in the DeLorean. Yeah, in the DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> we had the DeLorean, we just didn't have the hoverboards. Oh, I want one of those. Next story, moving on to, uh, we're going to Flight Global for this one, flightglobal.com. And it's to an aircraft we've talked about on the show a few times before in the past. And this one uh, is Airbus intending ETOPS for the Beluga XL uh, to support transatlantic operations. So Airbus is to seek extended twin engine operations or ETOPS approval for its Beluga XL outsized transporter in order to support commercial services involving overwater flights. Three Beluga XLs based on the A330 have been built, the most recent introduced in October 2020. Another three will be manufactured, the last two of which will have 180-minute ETOP approval, according to Beluga XL Chief Engineer Pascal Valentin. 
Uh, Valentin disclosed the ETOPS plan during a Royal Aeronautical Society event on the 4th of February. He said that Airbus wants to have the two final aircraft due to arrive in 2022 and 2023 to have the flexibility to conduct transatlantic flights, uh, pointing to the possibility of satellite transport to launch stations in North America. Valentin says the aircraft, the current uh, A300-600ST Beluga fleet, will be phased out as the XLs arrive and demand uh, on the 600ST fleet rose from 6,000 hours in 2014 to 8,600 hours in 2017. But the XL offers uh, capacity relief because it's able to accommodate two Airbus A350 wings at a time. Each XL will operate about 1,000 flights and 1,700 hours per year. This capacity strategy, rather than the Dash 600 ST's age, says Valaton, is the main reason for the fleet renewal. We can still use the Dash 600 ST, but what will it? What will we do with it? He says. Uh, Valenton hints that the Airbus has also considered other options for the Dash 600 ST fleet, pointing out that it can be used to carry whatever is big and needs to be transported. Although unlike aircraft such as the Antonov AM124, it cannot unload at ground level, so a mobile platform stored at the, on the aircraft could be ne- would be necessary for such roles. Airbus has signalled that it does not intend the XL to replace the seaborne transport of aircraft sections between European manufacturing plants and the final assembly lines in the USA and China. Airbus is also looking to improve the XL's capabilities uh, following its entry into service in January last year. Its original flight test aircraft will become part of operational XL fleet, says Valenton, but it's likely to be the last to be introduced, joining once on its onboard test instrumentation has been removed. The airframer has uh, been conducting a series of test flights around 60 hours so far to obtain approval for Cat 3 Autoland on the aircraft. This requires an extensive effort to test Autoland under various conditions, including crosswind tests performed at Newcastle in December last year. It's safe to say this this aircraft, the original uh, Beluga, has been around for a number of years. And uh, I've always said, always thought to myself, it would be interesting to see what Airbus, you know, at the end do with these, uh, the old, you know, going out um, the, you know, the Beluga's fleet, so... I mean, I, I imagine that they'd be very popular as a sort of like a museum piece, aren't they? Because they are a very <laughs> new, unique aircraft, aren't they? Oh, yes. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Uh, Nick Codling saying that he used to have uh, daily beluga flights going uh, to Tulu- from Toulouse to Chester, uh, going over my place in Devon uh, over the last few days. Oh, that's quite cool. That's a very mm. cool thing, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, they, they are a very, very standout aircraft i'm trying to remember because i i I did see it where because when i was at uh toulouse when i had my little test to fly i seem to recall that it was actually on the tarmac at toulouse um because we could see it from the terminal building because the terminal is the other side um and it was quite an impression it does it literally looks like a dolphin it's the most uh, you know i presume that's the thing um but uh, yeah great aircraft It, it is isn't it it's very iconic so, Nev, the uh, next story, last story for you, and a uh, uh, bit of a worrying story. bit of drama, certainly. Mm. Um, and it's on simpleflying.com. 
It says that a teenage boy has been discovered alive after stowing away in the landing gear of a plane which travelled from Kenya to the Netherlands, surviving sub-zero temperature for several hours. The 16-year-old boy is understood to be from Kenya and thought to have boarded the plane in Nairobi, although it's not clear how he managed to get on board. The cargo aircraft travelling from Nairobi to Maastricht, stopping in Istanbul and London Stansted on the way. Uh, the boy, who has not been named, was discovered by staff at Maastricht Airport shortly after arrival. He was taken to hospital with severe hypothermia, but is now understood to be doing well. The Dutch Royal Mayor Scholze, uh, a police branch of the Netherlands Armed Forces, is investigating whether the teenager had been smuggled aboard the aircraft by human traffickers, the Telegraph reported. Uh, the aircraft depart departed Stansted and quickly climbed to 19,000 feet uh, Fortunately for the young man involved, the flight's short duration meant that it didn't climb any higher and the cruise phase lasted only 16 minutes. But my goodness me, that's... This That's is not quite the first the story, time this kind of thing has happened, is it, either? Mm. Um, so, Very um, scary story. Yeah, and actually to survive that long at what, uh, what sort of temperature is going to be, it's probably going to be minus you know, 30 or 40 degrees, probably at 19,000 feet, let alone the lack of oxygen at that sort of level. So uh, absolutely incredible, but um, yeah, amazing. There's a very interesting documentary about this on, a, I forget which channel it's on now, it's on um, one of the channels here in the UK and it was about, I think it was about that episode that happened in, was it 2015? And they actually had the camera inside the nose gear bay of a 747. They show just how little amount of room there is in there when the gear is, mm. um, you know, back inside. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a sort of crazy, crazy thing. Mm. Um, uh, just going, sorry, before, before we move on to that, there's, there's the, the, from the story previously, on a slightly li lighter note, no surprise here, but the puns have started. I oh. should stress. Uh, one coming in from Lane, which was very amusing. He says, you know, Matt, <laughs> nothing to lose. <laughs> uh, there you go. No? Blimey. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Armando, over to you. <laughs> Armando, yes, yes. Take us on to the next part of the show. <laughs> well, uh, on that bombshell, as Matt always says, <laughs> if you guys are ready, we managed to squeeze a little bit of military into the show. Thank goodness we got all those the other things out of the way. Matt, if you're ready, hit the button. <laughs> Okay, so this first story uh, is actually having to do with the, uh, the Bacon aircraft. So the Air Force announced on, on January 21st, 2020, Northrop Grumman has been awarded a $3.6 billion contract for operations, sustainment, and support of that Battlefield Airborne Communication node, including research, development, testing, evaluation, and integration of existing and future payloads. Uh, together with this sustainment contract, the service disclosed that the Bacon office, I just like saying that, um, which is headquartered at Hanscom Air Force Base, uh, that's in Massachusetts, uh, is working to procure six more E-11A aircraft over the next five years. Funding for the first aircraft has already been secured and negotiations are in the process or in process uh, with the contract award expected by the end of March and delivery of the aircraft by the end of June. 
So this announcement arrived just one year after the fatal crash in Afghanistan of one of its E-11s, uh, which reduced the fleet, the current fleet, from four to three aircraft. The investigation report published last month, the Air Force mentioned that a series of factors, together with a catastrophic, catastrophic failure of the left engine, contributed to the crash that led to the death of both pilots. Now, I was actually listening to the last APG. They were doing a, a story about that. They talked about this, and they talked about just uh, the potential factors that could have led that crew to uh, to that decision making and and honestly it was it was just a, a crude uh, a crew issue that led to that that mishap but this e eleven is based on the Bombardier Global Express business jet, which requires no external modica- modifications as the bacon payload is carried internally, so all the bacon is on the inside uh, the aircraft first leased at the <laughs> I'm now hungry. Stop saying That's that. That's the only reason why I picked this story because right. I can say bacon. Um, Fair enough. So the aircraft was leased and and later bought by the Air Force in 2011. It transitioned in 2019 from contingency funding to a long-term program of record. It's just money uh, speak. Uh, basically, these aircraft, uh, the the four of them, are are, are assigned to the 430th. At, Expeditionary Electronic Combat Squadron at Kandahar Airfield. Um, from there, they provide near constant coverage in that theater together with the EQ-4B. That's an unmanned aircraft. Uh, recently, some airplanes were spotted by ADSB uh, tracking websites while operating over the Persian Gulf, flying out of Al-Dafra. The Air Force, of course, did not provide any official involvement about this. Essentially, what this airplane is, is uh, airborne Wi-Fi. Um, so it's a massive, uh, it's got a bunch of servers as Matt popped up the pictures there. Yeah, well, it's bacon processing ones and zeros. I don't even know. That's not even funny. Um, <laughs> that's how little I know about this kind of stuff. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, the good news is, though, Nev, the cable management is very much up to scratch. Oh, yes. I was just admiring that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. Yes. Well, that's, that's the integration part of this. And that's why Northrop has uh, been awarded this contract is because they're great at producing beautiful works of art inside and outside of airplanes. Like this. Oh, look at that, Nev. They are. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it looks roomy for a Global Express when you put up the pictures. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, all kidding aside, communications is extremely important in, uh, in the military. Um, even when you're supporting outside combat operations, even humanitarian operations, imagine the ability to provide a high speed broadband Wi-Fi as well as other uh, communications uh, anywhere in the country by just plopping an airplane r- right on top of wow. your, um, yeah. your area. So Very that's cool. what these airplanes do. Very cool. Clever stuff. Yeah. Uh, next story. This uh, Actually, we talked about this KC-390, I believe, last year sometime. So, Carlos, if you want to take this one. Carlos, can't actually hear you. So, I, I remember this story actually from last time. I think we had um, we had quite a lot of really good pictures of this aircraft when we done the story last time. Well, that's good, because um, we've only got one this time. So. Oh, <laughs> this is from uh, Flight Global, who I'm sure have got a great picture on the website for this one. And... Uh, 
the Brazilian Air Force KC-390 in Alaska for cold weather testing. I tell you, they should have come here to the UK. Anyway, the Brazilian Air Force has sent one of its Embraer KC-390 Millennium Transports to Fairbanks, Alaska for cold weather testing. The aircraft arrived uh, just south of the Arctic Circle on the 8th of February and tests were planned for the duration of the following week. The Brazilian Air Force said uh, on the 10th of February, in the development, the Boeing, uh, they developed the Boeing 777X commercial airliner is also in Fairbanks for cold weather testing as well. Uh, the test itself serves to verify how the aircraft operates in extreme cold conditions that can reach minus 33. Now, that actually is very cold, uh, says the Brazilian Air Force. The isolated parts of the aircraft and possible cracks caused by the cold will be studied. So, Embraer... Uh, delivered the fourth KC-390 to the Brazilian Air Force in December. And Brasilia has ordered 28 examples of the medium lift transport in total. Uh, beyond Brazil, Hungary signed a deal for two KC-390s in November, and Portugal ordered five KC-390s in 2019. Embraer has struggled to gain additional commitments to buy the aircraft beyond an early flurry of letters of intent and orders. The company has 33 letters of intent outstanding that it's working to convert into firm orders. Argentina, Chile, Colombia, the Czech Republic and aviation services firm Skytech have signed letters of intent. So I do believe they really should have just come here to the uk really you know it's been minus i mean we've, what we have nev we had minus 20 oh in braemar in the east coast of scotland was minus 26 degrees minus, minus 26 oh yes wow that's quite cold it certainly was that that, that yeah. is cold yeah yeah okay I, you can have that i should i, I should air. i love this air. i should stress jonathan warner's been up to his old tricks as per usual and oh, he's doing no, a wonderful no. job of supplying me with loads of uh, pictures unfortunately he's sending them to the wrong device which means i can't pop them up on screen but there was there are in front of me i have some fantastic pictures of the very aircraft you were talking about but uh, they'll just have to be for my amusement i guess <laughs> oh dear Never mind. So John Jester in the chat room says minus 33 is normal in Fairbanks. He'd be more worried about pilots that will fall before the aircraft. Well, yeah, especially if you have the Brazilian Air Force operating in Alaska. And you know what's funny is uh, up until then, they could just go to Florida. There's the McKinley Climatic Lab. Uh, laboratory, that, which is where you see all the pictures of airplanes being frozen. It's on Eglin Air Force Base. I just looked it up, and that that facility, it's a giant hangar with a bunch of coolers, can, get, uh, can pump out negative 54 degrees C air for 40 minutes. Wow. Um, otherwise, it's a negative 20... Oh, no, no. The air is negative 72 Celsius. So they... I mean, oh, my goodness. But but that goes to show how how these airplanes are all tested, even an airplane made in Brazil, for uh, all possible conditions out there. And uh, uh, and you know what? You wouldn't think it, but things start really going wrong with airplanes in those cold conditions. Avionics take longer uh, to spool up, or they just don't work. Your engine procedures, your fuel management procedures, all the there's a lot of things that have to change in those Batteries. environments. Yeah, batteries, battery yeah. starts. Batteries hate cold weather. Yeah. Mm. So it's good that they're doing this. It's no, uh, it's no uh, secret. 
I love all my little transport airplanes. So the A400M, this KC390 is another one of my favorite airplanes that I'm kind of tracking. So And uh, John, as per usual, has been up to up to the usual scratch. Uh, episode 240, Caravans and Camping. We talked uh, about it receiving certification on this particularly on, on oh, oh, sorry, and on 346. So there you are. Episodes, those episodes, what? Was I'll, I'll stop talking next. Nev, I think it's Nevsko. Go from brand new airplanes to old airplanes. Nev, yes, thank you. I hope you weren't referring to me there, but um, <gasps> rude. Uh, it's on the <laughs> wardbirdsnews.com and it says that uh, the B 29 dock will host two other World War Two era aircraft in partnership with the Experimental Aircraft Association on uh, the 4th of July weekend, uh, which is between the Ju- uh, July the 2nd to the 5th in uh, this year, actually, in Wichester, uh, Wichester <clears throat> uh, Kansas. Uh, the event will feature B-29 Dock along with B-17 Aluminum Overcast and B-25 Berlin Express and will give Warbird fans a unique up-close-and-personal opportunity to see the three American bombers that helped win World War II. Josh Wells, uh, Doc's friends, general manager and executive director, said, We are tremendously excited to host this event and partner with the EAA to showcase three World War II-era bombers that served to protect freedom in both the European and Pacific theatres of war. This will be the largest event hosted by our team in Wichita, Uh, since the opening of the B-29 Dock Hangar uh, Education and Visitor Centre and we are confident it will be a highlight for the summer in Wichita and across the state of Kansas. All three aircraft will be on static display and open for ground and cockpit tours on Friday, July the 2nd at the B-29 Dock Hangar Education and Visitor Centre. The aircraft will operate ride flights on the 3rd and the 4th of July. Uh, The aircraft will be on static display uh, for the remainder of the weekend. Uh, And uh, the opportunity to bring bombers to Wichita to be featured alongside Doc was something we said yes to immediately, said Sean Elliott, EAA's Vice President of Advocacy and Safety, who is one of the few individuals who have flown all three aircraft. The history and legacy of these airplanes is surpassed only by the courage of the crews that flew these aircraft types in combat. We are proud to honour their memories during this reunion. Well, tickets for the uh, B-29 Doc flight experiences at the Wichita Warburg weekend are now on sale via the B29 Doc website at www.b29doc.com and flight tickets for the EAA's B25 and B17 can be purchased via the events and experience tab at eaa.org. Further details on the arrival of the EAA aircraft as well as hours for static ground tours will be announced as they are finalised and that sounds really exciting. I just hope it all goes ahead because Every time oh, I talk yeah. about events in the future, uh, things start going wrong. So um, let, let's see. But it sounds like a great, uh, great opportunity, isn't it? And when, when I was up in Oshkosh last week, everything is pointing towards uh, they, they are going to do something at Oshkosh. Uh, what, it's obviously not going to look the same as it has in previous years, but uh, it's already been sponsored by the Air Force Special Operations Command who I'm very familiar with, um, but they, they will be doing something. And this is not exactly what I was thinking when, when we put the story in there, that this is optimistic that, that 
some of these air shows or aviation events are, are able to happen in the near future. And um, we can only hope that keeps going that way. Huh? Yeah. So just, just before we go to uh, George Lee's uh, part section, uh, segment next on the show, uh, we've got some feedback from uh, listener Steve. And uh, Steve says, hi, all enjoyed the section from Al. Uh, have attached photo that shows the perils of taking the incorrect route circa 2005. All the best, Steve. Oh, wow. Look at these oh, pictures. Dear. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is... Uh, uh, lost its newness, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Yes, yes. Uh, so this is a, this is the perils of, of understanding your turning circles and, and what can happen to a, to a Thomas uh, Cook aircraft aircraft. Uh, if you don't, there's a second picture as well, which are going to pop up. Um, yeah, that's not gone well, has it? Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm a bit worried about the uh, bus shell, the bus shell that's below oh, I know. there, actually. Um, I know, that, that, would, yeah. that would distress me greatly, but, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So that was sent into podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Do feel free to get in touch with the show. Uh, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp. Uh, and uh, as we just uh, as we've just received, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com is the email. You can also find us, tag us in Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter uh, by searching for us on social media with Plain Talking UK. So we're going to move on to the next part of the show, which I'm sure are many of you listening and listeners are looking forward to and this is part seven of the fantastic interview uh, that captain nick took with george lee so here we go brilliant then so let's go back to uh, Edaway Gunnery. Um, those two events I, I recalled. Uh, what was that like? Uh, 92.5% Edaway Gunnery score? Fabulous. I don't know whether we need to look at this chronologically, but uh, the first attachment for armament work, again, was with Six Squadron. And that was when we went to Sardinia, Dechimamanu Airfield in Sardinia. And we, I, I went there twice, actually, and it had its own moments over there. The range we used was called Capa Frasca, and my vivid memory was the Italian range workers, range staff people, in no way wanted to have their evenings disrupted by having to go to work for these crazy British pointing themselves at the ground in the dark. And all sorts of reasons came up why... It couldn't happen. Like the, the sea state is too rough. Uh, the rescue boat, she is unserviceable. <laughs> but we had, a, we had a very strong, determined squadron boss, very, and he was not one to back down and lose an argument. So he prevailed, we prevailed, and we did night ground attack at Capofrasca. But anyway, moving on across, uh, then it was to Malta. And uh, I think that shoot was actually at Malta, Nick, rather than Cyprus. Maybe was it? Memory. Okay. Uh, I, I thought it... I recognized myself in the picture wearing uh, Tamashanta, but it might well have been Malta. It was in one of those two. And um, Malta, my memories of Malta 
Yeah, the lovely, friendly Maltese people hiring a scooter one weekend, going to a little island called Gozo off the coast of Malta for a bed and breakfast stay with a retired naval officer. And then Dom Mintoff, I guess he didn't want us there any longer. So he pushed us out of Malta and off we went to Cyprus. And Cyprus is beautiful, as you well know, absolutely beautiful. The people, the Greek Cypriots, uh, the food, all of that, the flying. We were always there in the hot weather and it got very hot, very hot. That particular shoot you mentioned, yeah, I mean, what, what, what can I say? It was extremely satisfying. The Vulcan cannon that we used on the F-4 was the most magnificent of weapons, smooth as silk in its operation, pinpoint accuracy, which from an air-to-air perspective was probably actually not ideal, but incredible accuracy and just smooth, smooth. And what a rate of fire. I mean, basically Gatling-type guns, six barrels, peacetime rate of fire, 4,000 rounds a minute wartime 6,000 rounds a minute or 100 rounds a second, 20 millimeter shells. Um, and of course we had our, we had a, it was a can type setup with the Canberra towing the banner in a oval racetrack type pattern with us tipping in and calling the Canberra to commence his turn. And as you remember, Nick, we only had a, because of the rate of closure, we only had a half second available to us to get the rounds away and break away before we, before we hit the flag. So it was exciting stuff. It, it, it really was and very satisfying when it worked well. But again, it, it was precision flying. It wasn't probably, well, obviously it wasn't like a real combat situation where you get a fleeting, a fleeting flashing moment and hope the rounds are going to hit. But nonetheless, a very good exercise for crew coordination, for using the seaman's eye and testing of all of one's flying skills, smoothness and uh, consistency. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the other one of the Cyprus detachment was towards the end. I was very conscious of the demanding heat on the ramp and especially and really feeling it for the ground crew. And I said to the boss one evening, uh, one evening in the bar, I said, boss, our armors are out there slaving away and who knows what temperature, something awful. And the aircraft go way up into middle airspace, do their thing, come back, red hot gun, and they're out there doing the same thing again. I think we should really give them a little bit of a, a more than an impression, just see actually the gun in action. How about we set up a special mission to actually accomplish that? And to my astonishment, he took the bait and to my further astonishment, he pushed it up to air officer level in Cyprus. And to my greatest astonishment, he approved it. And then, of course, boss, I said, you'll need somebody with ground attack experience to do this. So I'm your man. <laughs> so off I went with my regular uh, navigator. All, as you said, all the troops were out there lining those little cliffs uh, by the sea there south of Akrotiri came in from the ocean down on the wave tops, pulled up in front of them using full burner, which of course wasn't necessary for performance, but nothing wrong with a bit of show. And over we went. And the normal firing on the air-to-air was half a second. I was given special permission to actually fire the gun for a whole five seconds. That is a very long time. So I'm opening up at quite a long range from this this time-expired multi-seat dinghy our weapons instructor worked out precisely how high I needed to aim initially and then smoothly bumped forward as range closed. 
and it just worked beautifully. The, yeah, the, the dinghy was absolutely smashed. That was my last flight on the squadron. Yes, uh, two, two events I, well, that event I particularly remember. But um, uh, coming back in perhaps into a chronological order, um, you, you were again now gliding, and this time in the United States for the Smirnoff Derby, um, and where you were pitted against some of the best pilots uh, in the world. Um, now, I know that this event has particularly good memories uh, for you. Can you tell us a bit about that? Apart from World Championships, flying the Smirnoff Derby was one of the highlights of my gliding life. Absolutely superb. I'd never been to America before. Uh, there was only five of us flying in the event, invitational, sponsored by the vodka people, Smirnoff. And we started off from an airfield actually, actually in Los Angeles. All the television and radio people were all there for this big moment. We were towed up out of the L.A. basin over the San Gabriel Mountains into the desert area. And up we climbed as a group. We always started at the same height, called a race horse, race horse start, and leveled our wings and off we went towards our designated destination for the day. So it was new terrain every day. This was pre-GPS. So all we had was a map and a compass. We were very experienced glider pilots, so no way was one of us going to be following another glider pilot. We all individually knew best. We were doing our own thing. So I do recall at one stage being down around 2,000 feet over a fairly desert-type country, feeling very alone and very anxious. But it was magic. It was really magic. And at the end of every day, all the publicity again, and we go to a glider pilot's home that evening for some social time. So it was a designated number of legs all the way across America, not a straight line, and down, up, down, all the way across. And we ended up with a ceremonial fly-in to Dulles, no less. So the event had finished, but this was for the media. So we let down and we did, we followed each other's tail as we let down in the overhead, which is incredible. This is Dulles. And we landed on the short takeoff and landing runway and took, took the gliders off and parked them to one side. And then I noticed in the background, oh, gosh, there's Concord in town. And here's, here's a young British Airways first officer striding vigorously over towards us. And it turned out he was a glider, a glider pilot from Booker. And uh, we, we had a bit of a chat, and I suddenly realized, hey, there's a possible photo opportunity here because they'll be using the big, one of the big main runways, which was behind us. And I asked him, because he was departing soon, I said, roughly when will you be unsticking, getting that nose up, you know, on this runway for takeoff? We'll position our glider, the British team, set it all up, camera and everything, get a magnificent promo shot. And he said, oh, we'll depart such, a, such and such a time. We got everything ready. Concord Julie came out onto the runway, smoke, the smoke, belching out the back and he started off down the runway and the the temperature humidity was such that the unstick was way beyond what he said near the oh, end of the runway somewhere and he staggered oh, off and the whole thing was a bust never mind oh what a shame what a shame now um when you got back to the uk um you were in the nationals placed second but more importantly perhaps the country honored you 
for your achievements. Uh, firstly, with the Royal Aero Club's gold medal, which I might point out is only award for, awarded for outstanding achievements. Um, and you joined the ranks of uh, previous aviators like the Wright Brothers, Blario, all cock and brown, even the Apollo 11 astronauts. A fine company. That was a remarkable thing to be given, yes? If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Big thanks to everyone who has uh, sent us feedback about that uh, series of interviews. And there are more to come. So uh, if you're looking forward to that, uh, stay tuned to uh, future episodes. I think, uh, Matt, there are uh, quite a, f a few more to come, isn't there? Sorry, I'll bring my fader up. That'll help. I've got three. <laughs> I, I've got three I think there's three or four left, if, if, if I recall correctly. Brilliant. So, yeah. Excellent. And a big thanks again to, uh, to Captain Nick as well for mm. all his hard work on those. So well done. So... Uh, wings and rails hello to on wings and rails in the chat room first time uh on the live show caught up in the live show uh normally work at this time but i'm a loyal listener of the podcast great start uh, of the weekend so oh, thank wow. you on wings and rails it's very thank kind you. of you i want to know more about the wings and rails thing that's very yes. exciting yes Good. I, want, I want an update on that immediately <laughs> yes thank you very much indeed but uh yes so uh, uh we've actually got something coming up uh, in the not too distant future, Armando, what yeah, have we guys. got? Uh, a special day. I am starting to see this be the best show of 2021. Without already. doubt, we uh, are feverishly planning this, and we have already started receiving some of our segments in from oh, some man. very notable women in aviation. Um, I, and we continue planning forward. So, uh, 12th of March, tune in. It's going to be a live show, except none of us will be here. That will be hosted by Megan. Carry on, Dr. Steph, Jody Ruger, who is an air show performer, Ariel Tweedo from Flying Wild Alaska, and Kathy Mexted, who is a uh, BA crew, or sorry, she was a former uh, uh, cabin crew member. So it's shaping up to be just a wonderful episode, probably the best one of this year. And we may actually get enough uh, segments in that we're going to have to play this out over a couple different episodes. <laughs> Let's hope so. I'm, I'm really excited about this yeah. one. So be sure to tune in for that episode on the 12th of March. And it's all in honor of uh, International Women's Day, which falls around about the same time. So it's really, really exciting stuff. Can't wait. Can't wait. And Nev, we've also got uh, someone coming up in a few weeks time, haven't we? Oh, yes. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, just had this confirmed this week, actually. So on Friday, the 26th of February, uh, we are doing a live interview with Rory on air. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with Rory, uh, he's a commercial helicopter pilot and a fixed wing microlight pilot. And he's got a superb uh, YouTube channel, which is all about sharing his joys of flying and, and new skills and striving to become a better aviator. So he's just 
most recently, I mean very recently, in uh, in January, uh, passed his commercial uh, helicopter pilot's licence. So he's now a CPLH, uh, and uh, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. So he actually quit his job at uh, BBC Media City in Salford in Manchester uh, to do this full time. So I'm just going to put a quick uh, link to his YouTube um, channel in the chat room for those of you who aren't familiar with Rory, but he's a fabulous fella and he's got some great stories to tell us, I'm sure. Really looking forward to that too. We've got some good weeks coming up. Yep, next week on the show, so episode 356 next week, we have got another guest coming on the show, Rebecca Dean. Now, Rebecca uh, has had 15 years in the executive jet business as crew and more, and uh, she has flown with and worked alongside heads of state, royals, and some very, very well-known people who travel on very high class business jets and uh, she's got some great stories to tell us next week on the show so make sure you join us uh, next friday uh, when we speak to rebecca yeah really excited okay time to wrap up then and uh, i'll just do the social medias i know i did it a moment ago but uh, just in case you've forgotten uh, www.plaintalkinguk.com is the website if you want to get in touch via whatsapp it's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six uh thank you very much for your lovely message by the way laura davies i haven't had a chance to share it with the rest of the group yet but i will do that later thank you it was a lovely message and uh social media search for us on facebook twitter instagram by looking for plain talking uk and of course uh, don't forget to like and subscribe us on youtube where if you are listening to the audio of this version you can see what on earth we look like actually don't do that but the video that we do do outside of it is great <laughs> so don't forget to check us out next week and uh and also james jim yes big thanks to sorry, the voice of my ear john is uh just yeah so don't forget to uh, thanks uh, as well to uh, to jim as well for appearing on the show from honeywell earlier on and uh, big thanks to everyone at honeywell for helping us with that uh, interview so big round up quick one right nev what are you doing next week uh, very little. I'm going to the opticians on Monday, so that'll be the highlight of my entire week. Woo-hoo! Distance, of course. <laughs> Armando, what are you doing next week? Armando, he's muted. He's muted. Oh, okay, I just killed a couple of seconds. No, as Steph mentioned in the chat room, it's a dreary weekend here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So we've already cancelled skydiving for the weekend. So looks like um my wings are clipped for this week. Oh, Matt, what are you doing dear. next week? Uh, not a lot. Good, thank you. And John, what are you doing next week? Thank you. Yeah. So, big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room. Thank you, everyone, for watching the show. Thanks to all the audio downloaders as well. So, from me, Carlos, here in my home studio, from Nev in the glorious Nev Tech Studios, and from Matt in the P2K Studios, and from Armando in his luxurious Charlotte Studios, and from John in his little studio. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.